Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 44, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of a book released, I think, in April or May called The God Who Fights For You, and last year's the book Spiritual Grit. And before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, on which this podcast found its life, and I'm the editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. One other thing in that list of Jesus-centered thingies is the Jesus Center Planner, which I really had nothing to do with it, but it was the love child of all those other things, actually. And uh, that Jesus Centered Planner has a number of new uh, features we've added this year, all new devotions, a few other little changes we've made, but that thing sells out every single year, and it's going to sell out this year. So it couldn't be a better uh, Christmas gift for that person in your life who loves to plan and schedule and uh, this is a resource that will help them to remember Jesus throughout their day in the most natural of ways. So we'll put a link to the Jesus Center Planner on our episode page at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and you can check it out there. So today is the 11th episode in a series we're calling The Beeline Practices, and that's the title, uh, The Beeline Practices, of the last part of the Jesus Centered Life book. And it's basically a menu of adventures and experiences and habits that you can try to kind of jet yourself into a closer orbit around Jesus in your life. So they're not shoulds or how-tos or try harder things. They're, they're just little playful experiments in how we can uh, orient our life closer to Jesus. So they're simply a, a way to experience uh, the transforming presence of Jesus by getting closer to him. That's it. So we're exploring all of these. There's 18 or 19 of them. And we're uh, taking each one and focusing on the core of each one. And this, this episode is the beeline practice of needing him to know him, needing him to know him, which sounds kind of crazy, funny, and inexplicable. I know. <laughs> But here today to help us unravel um, all of that inexplicability is none other than the Beckinator. Maybe I could just call you the Explaininator. No, that doesn't sound as good. Yeah. Hi. So uh, <laughs> give us a little update on what you're doing these days, Becky. Well, I was in LA for a More Than Me event um, that was at like this beautiful like country club in Beverly Hills, and I met a ton of really incredible women there. And I'm going back to LA on Monday, actually, for ProdCon. I'm going to be going to a product development conference, and I'm super excited. I just downloaded the app. They just sent us a link to the app. And so people are joining, and you can see the other attendees that are going to be there. It's not a huge conference. I think it's only a 1,000 people that will be there which is not in conference world, huge. And there's already like the product manager for Grubhub and for Cisco and like some of these really big companies. So I'm really excited to just kind of hear from some people who are working on really large scale successful products and what they've been seeing successful in their marketing and uh, the way that they're developing new products. Wow. So Beverly Hills, did you get any gold dust on you? 
are you are you a celebrity now no i am so like i was so ready to go back to like my small town farm bill like not (laughs) i was like this is too much i can't handle it (laughs) wow it sounds like the premise for a romantic comedy small town farm girl goes to beverly hills yes totally it's a lifetime movie and and funny chaos ensues so yeah there's probably you know contrary to popular belief there's probably very few hillbillies in beverly hills no no very few so i think the to launch into this i think the best way to explain what this beeline practice of needing him to know him is all about is to take a deeper dive into the psychology of control. So we all know what being a controlling person is and probably either have a controlling person in your life, or if you don't have one in your life, you probably are that controlling person. If you can't think of somebody in your life who's controlling, you probably are that person. So Becky, do you consider yourself a controlling person or a high control person? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really? Yeah, because honestly, like the definition of control is just doing something that will change the outcome of someone else's behavior to the way that I want it to be. And did you memorize that or did you find that definition in Beverly Hills somewhere? <laughs> I looked it up <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, if that's the definition of being controlling, every single day I'm doing something that's going to change the outcome of someone else's behavior to the way that I want it to be. I think that's basically what my job is. So when we say that somebody is a controlling person, though, we usually mean it like they're a little bit out of bounds with their control, right? So, so what's the difference between being a person who operates in basic control, like what you just described, and somebody we might describe as controlling or maybe... Um, over the top about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the over the top about it is it's really just an extreme version of this, right? Hmm. It's it's just a really extreme version of this to where you're threatening. I think if you're starting to use threats as a way to control or if you're holding something over someone or if you're manipulating um, behaviors or lying, if you're telling lies as a way to control, Um, it's just a deeper, it's a deeper sense of, of this, your motive is still the same. Um, but you're just willing to go to greater lengths in order to do it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I get ready to lead people in something, which I do all the time, like two or three times a week, I'm leading people in some kind of, um, exploration of Jesus. Um, when I'm getting ready to do that, I, the, the metaphor that makes the most sense to me is that I'm the, the leader of an improvisational jazz band. That's, how, that's what helps me to understand what I'm about to do. And as in that persona, I am definitely in a high control mode because I'm paying ridiculous attention to the people around me and trying to do the same with the spirit of Jesus at the same time. And I'm noticing the nuances and I'm listening for what way to go next with the conversation or what question to ask somebody who just threw something out on the table or what coaching to give a little group that's trying to pursue a question I've given them. I'm in a kind of a hyper aware um, mode. And so little nuances just matter to me a lot. And, um, but I don't think of that kind of control as a negative thing. I think of it as simply being highly engaged with something way more than the average person might be in that situation. 
but if I lived my whole life that way, um, it might lead to really irritating people. <laughs> just, just being hyper aware and, and on top of things all the time doesn't come off as relaxed you know, uh, uh, for obvious reasons. So there's a, I found this uh, article in Psychology Today written by this uh, psychiatrist named Elliot Cohen, who is president of something I've never heard of before. He is president of the Logic-Based Therapy and Consultation Institute. So I wish there was an acronym for that, but um, the Logic-Based Therapy and Consultation Institute. That alone um, tempts me to slow down and try to understand what the heck that is, but I won't. Here, here's what he says in this article in Psychology Today about control. He says, one of the most prevalent fears people have is that of losing control. This is the fear that if you don't manage to control the outcome of future events, something terrible will happen. People who are chronic sufferers from such losing control anxiety keep themselves continuously in a heightened state of stress with only brief, unsatisfying intermissions between fears. The crux of the problem is the demand for certainty in a world that is always tentative and uncertain. It's precisely this unrealistic demand that creates the anxiety. You think that you must accurately predict and manage the future, not just have some probabilistic and uncertain handle on it. So people with losing control anxiety are essentially perfectionists. They demand perfect certitude or near perfect certitude. And when they don't get it, they worry and ruminate about it. Well, this is a formula for a roller coaster ride that never ends until, of course, you die. So the key to controlling your losing control anxiety is letting go of your demand for certainty. That's the end of his little statement. I found that, I mean, some of it's a little obtuse, but some of it's really penetrating and right on the button. I think he describes this whole issue of certainty really well. So let's talk, let's, let's uh, talk about a few questions that, that for me come out of this little explanation of high control anxiety. Why, Becky, why, why is letting go of our demand for certainty so freaking difficult for most of us? Not just those of us who are perfectionists, but most people have a really hard time letting go of certainty. Why do you think that is? And maybe you can even tap into why it's hard for you. Well, I mean, certainty is rooted in the fact that we're, we're hardwired and even inspired, I would say, to develop the life that we want to have, right? And so if you have a, a specific view of how you want your life to go, um, then everything that you, you do and everything that everyone else around you does has to go a certain way and so, so that you can certainly have that life. Hmm, that's good. And that, that fear of the unknown, when we say unknown, we don't ever think, oh, it's a happy unknown. When we say um, so there, the, that we're heading into the unknown, for instance, we almost always mean that there's something foreboding about the unknown. And I, I think I was thinking about this the other day that before Adam and Eve ate of the tree and betrayed God and uh, acquired the knowledge of good and evil, um, they, were, they, they were unaware that anything dark or foreboding could be lurking out there in the unknown. 
their whole experience of life was that life is good and God is good. So the unknown was not only not something to be afraid of, but probably eagerly anticipated. It's only when the knowledge of good and evil enters into our world that the unknown becomes foreboding and then we demand certainty. Like we want to hedge our bets against the thing we can't see coming down the road. It's like we're all driving at night on a, on a, a remote road, pitch black with no headlights. We just don't know when we're gonna slam into someone <laughs> or something will come at us and T-bone us from the side because nobody has lights on the road in front of them. So what we uh, live our lives trying to ensure is that we got to get our dang headlights on, on. And the farther in front of us that they shine, the better. <laughs> but uh, the truth is, it's kind of a, I mean, obviously, it, it's, a, it's a false comfort that we, that we have headlights on any aspect of our future. We often assume we know, but so little of it is really actually in the light to us. So, so I think it's difficult for all of us to deal with the anxiety we feel of what could be coming around the corner or coming at us in the dark. So um, it's interesting that this guy, Elliot Cohen, says that uh, part of this anxiety comes from the reality that the world is tentative and uncertain by its very nature. But uh, you know, Becky, don't you think that sometimes Jesus feels exactly that way to us as well, just that he himself feels tentative and uncertain to us in certain seasons of our life? Can you remember a time when you felt like um, that not only is the world tentative and uncertain, but I'm not so sure about Jesus either? Yeah, I mean, if you if your belief is that Jesus has the power to control the outcomes of everything in your life, and that him being good and for you would mean that he would control the outcomes of your life so that everything comes out the way that you want it to come out, then you could start to feel uncertain about Jesus's role in your life. Like either he's just an absent God who doesn't really care to, to make the outcomes in a way that would benefit you, or he, um, he is a mean God and he's inflicting, pain be by not intervening, um, in certain areas of our life. Um, but the truth of the matter is that the, the painful parts of our life are the ones where we grow, um, to be more like the person that we were meant to be. And so he can't actually step in and, and eliminate pain in our life. Otherwise he wouldn't be good. Um, and I don't know if you know this, Rick, but marketing people, um, in general are more likely to become um, alcoholics or drug abusers. And especially people who own marketing firms are actually more likely to become alcoholics or wow. drug abusers. I had no and idea. Why, why is that? So when I started off into this, I was like, I don't want to be the owner of a marketing firm because every person who I know who owns a marketing firm is an alcoholic. Um, and it, it's part of the reason is that we are in a very demanding field that requires a lot of feedback. Like I mostly receive feedback all day long from people on work that I'm doing. And also it, it's because of technology, there's so many things that are outside of our control. I was launching a campaign right before this, and it's a pretty straightforward campaign. We've done it a million times, 
but we were having, we're using a different texting platform than what we would normally use because it was chosen by the client. And it was having a hard time technologically connecting to the email campaign. And we were going back and forth between four different people to troubleshoot it. And literally in one hour, the client is going to get on the stage in front of 10,000 people at the QuickBooks conference. And she's going to need to be able to tell them the text number so that this thing works, right? It's an incredible amount of pressure to get things perfect and things are always outside of your control. And that amount of stress just results in people dealing and coping with it by, you know, using substances. And so I have to, I have to every day just kind of separate myself from that perfectionism that is being put on me all the time. And I have to separate myself from connecting my worth and my value to what I'm doing every day. There's just no other way that you could live in this kind of a job unless you did that. You know, it's interesting that I've never thought about this in, in this way, but it's, it just feels prompted by what you're describing there that, that, um, we often, as a normal practice in the church, we would never use these words, but this is functionally what we do. We treat Jesus like a drug because the, the, the addiction mm-hmm. mentality that you're describing comes from wanting to, to take something that will almost immediately give you a sense of peace or uh, control or uh, agency over whatever is happening in your life. It, it, it has sort of this um, trusted impact on you. And I think perhaps the reason in the church that we turn Jesus's teachings into formulas and recipes is we're trying to ingest the pill. If we just take the pill of Jesus, he will do this and this and this in our life. And because we are so afraid of uncertainty and so frightened by the uncertain, uncertain world out there, we need we we sort of craft Jesus in our in the image that we need him to be, so that he can feed this this driving addiction we have to take the edge off of our fear of uncertainty. So so you know uh, we follow his principles and his recipes, or at least what we've turned into recipes from the things he said, um, so that we can get on top of things uh, so that we're not driving along that road in the night with no headlights. So, so it, it makes sense why, why we would do this, that, that, uh, and I think it, it's true. My experience of church is that uh, it often exists to feed our need for control and diminish actually our direct dependence on Jesus, which if you think about the, the whole of the old Testament, leading into the New Testament is a story of God wanting his people to be dependent on him, to not be dependent on what uh, the, tr- the transaction that we make with him so that we get him to do what we want him to do, but be dependent on him in a close, intimate relationship. And it's funny that in the church, we tend to feed the control side of ourselves, the self-sufficiency side of ourselves, more than the dependence on Jesus side of ourselves. Can you think just off the top of your head, Becky, of like you're nodding your head and the, the people listening can't see, but Becky's nodding her head. So how, how do you resonate with that in the church where the, what, with what I just said about the church sort of feeding that desire for control? 
I was really more thinking about the the lack of feeding our desire for dependence. Uh, um, yeah. We t- we talk about prayer and talking to God, and um, we talk about um, kind of practices that are in spirit about dependence, but we don't we don't actually do a ton where we model and give permission and explore independence. Um, I I think it's probably one of the most underutilized gifts or practices. I don't even know if you can call it a practice because it's, it really comes out of a really deep, deep place in you um, that I think only the Holy Spirit can really tap into. But um, dependence is like giving in to something, not giving up. And I think control is all about, we have to give up this and you have to stop doing this and you have to stop being this way. Whereas giving in is about trusting that I don't actually have the ability to, to give up any of this. I don't have the ability to change my behavior. I'm I'm inadequate in my ability to stop doing the things that I shouldn't be doing. Um, and I think we, we both know this, that when we, when we focus more on our relationship with Jesus and we focus more on um, just giving into him and admitting our, our inabilities, that he comes in and he solves all of those things for us. Um, I was talking, uh, I, I teach a masterclass series for Femme City once a month. So I was just doing that this morning and the theme this month was gratitude. And what I was talking about was how we slow down in order to speed up in this season of gratitude. And it's all about looking backwards instead of just forging ahead and just being like, oh, I'm not even going to look back at the last year. I'm just going to forge ahead. But being grateful for the the losses and the challenges and the missteps of this last year, as well as the blessings. Um, sometimes I think we're so focused on just being grateful for the things that we got that we wanted, that we're not grateful for the lessons that we learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I talked about was how um, we have a tendency to just focus in on our, our weaknesses and be like, I'm going to double down on this this year. I'm going to double down on these things that I did wrong or that I'm not doing well. And I'm going to focus my energy and attention. Dependence says, you know what, Jesus, I see all these weaknesses and I know that they have got to go, but I'm inadequate. And so I'm going to focus, I'm going to double down on my strengths and I'm going to let you double down on my weaknesses. And I think that the outcome of your work there will just naturally take care of them. I'm just going to double down on the things that you made me to be in the way that you made me to be. And I'm going to trust you that all this other stuff you have control over and that you have the ability to come in and work in those areas for me. Yeah. I think what something you just said, I think is a vital, vital distinction. You said there's a difference between giving up and giving in. And when we hear the word dependence, we often think giving up, that we're giving over ourselves, we're giving over our agency, but we're not giving over our agency. We know that Jesus expects us to live fully out of who we, he's created us to be, but simultaneously, he expects us to live dependently on him, which is, means to have an, an attitude, sort of an overarching a- attitude of, I'm always giving in to you, Jesus. I'm always giving in to you. I'm not giving up my agency. 
I know I need to operate as a full partner with you because you've made it clear, Jesus, that you will not do anything alone that you can do with us. You want a partnership. You want a relationship with us. So you want to do stuff together with us. And together means we put something on the table too. That's what he wants. But how do we live in a kind of a chosen dependence? The, the beeline practice of knowing him, to, uh, needing him to know him means that when we need Jesus the most, we, we come to know him the most. That makes sense because our need draws us to him. Our need obliterates the distance that we keep from him, and it feels weak in the moment to, to obliterate that distance and admit our need, uh, admit our dependence, feels vulnerable because it is. That's why we gravitate to control. We don't like that feeling of vulnerability. I, I sometimes refer to the seasons of our life as forced vulnerability, uh, forced dependence. What I mean by that is we're going through a really hard season or a challenging season where we're viscerally aware that we're in over our heads or we're, we're incredibly afraid of the season that we're moving through. So we're driven to dependence. And people who are, who are Jesus lovers, who are driven to dependence in a season of their life, they will universally say, um, I loved the intimacy that I experienced with Jesus, but I never want to go back to that again. It's two things at once. Um, I, I can't remember a time when I talked to somebody who loves Jesus and who went through a season like that who didn't say those two things. They love the produce of it, but they don't want to pay the price for it by being back in that horrible place that dri drove them into it. So, so there are plenty of downsides of a forced dependent season in our lives, but I think it's interesting for us to explore to kind of go deeper into what you were just describing, Becky, which is chosen dependence, where we're not forced into mm -hmm. that kind of intimacy, but we live a life that chooses that kind of dependent intimacy. So I thought it'd be good to start off um, by uh, pointing out something I, uh, that um, I kind of highlight in this chapter of the Jesus-centered life as well. It's Paul telling his friends, a, uh, a kind of a startling truth. His friends in Corinth is who he's speaking to. This is in his uh, first letter to the Corinthians in chapter four, verses three, three through four. So he's, he's about to tell them a, a startling, upending truth about how he lives his life. Here it is. He says, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So um, I, I've always found this statement by Paul fascinating because he's saying, um, hey, my conscience is clear. I'm not really um, riding herd over myself. Um, I'm not judging myself. And I'm really not accepting your judgment on me. I'm looking to the spirit of Jesus in me to let me know what I need to examine about myself and what I don't. He will convict me. It's, it's, like this, um, it's like this piece of technology that the rider rental truck company has installed in all their trucks. I call it the rider box. It's my comparison to the Holy Spirit. And the rider box is, is uh, this thing that uses their, the, their pro proprietary technology called ride smart technology. It's a little box that sits inside the cab 
and it tracks the truck's location and speed and fuel efficiency and even the check engine lights. So the rider truck has something inside it that is checking for you all of these primary functions and then giving you feedback. Well, that's essentially what Paul's describing is his relationship with the Holy Spirit and how he lives his life. He's constantly referencing back the Spirit of Jesus in him to give him feedback on where he's at. So he's living a very dependent lifestyle, so much so that he has divorced himself from dependence on outside um, uh, sort of assessments and even his own interior assessments. He has crossed the bridge over to, I am trying to be totally dependent on the spirit of Jesus. He'll let me know if there's something I need to deal with. So this, I think this is the portal into a chosen dependent life. So let's, let's uh, take a look here at Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 5, as just a uh, sort of a case study in living in chosen dependence. This is an encounter that Jesus has with his 12 disciples when he sends them out on their own for the first time. So he's, he's uh, up to this point uh, done everything with them, but he chooses now to send them out um, on their own with a partner and gives them kind of a, a daunting job description and some other stuff. But I think it's uh, really fascinating to pay attention to how he creates a dependent expectation in them as he sends them out. So let's, let's start in verse five. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Now don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only go to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Here's their job description. <laughs> Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Oh, my gosh. The, the four worst things to have on your job description. <laughs> They're so daunting. Um, then he says, give as freely as you have received. Don't take any money in your money belts, no gold, silver, or even copper coins. Don't carry a traveler's bag with a change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. Whenever you enter city or village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. When you enter the home, give it your blessing. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessing stand. If it is not, take back the blessing. If any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on the judgment day. Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. Wow, there's a lot in there. But I, get, I think the first thing I want to ask just as an overarching thing here, Becky, is um, what are some obvious examples of dependence that uh, Jesus is plunging them into? What, what are some things that just jump off the page that are clearly ways that he's trying to create a dependent relationship as he sends them out this first time? Well, their basic physical needs have to be met by people, and they're not sure that they will be met. Random like people. 
Random people have to feed them and house them. So just their basic physical needs are um, at the mercy of people deciding to give them hospitality um, or not. Just playing off that, there's something I've never, it's really never struck me as strongly as it does just now. Jesus says, whenever you enter a city or village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. Can you imagine if you're going into Bend, Oregon in just, <laughs> in just a few minutes, and your mission was to search around for a worthy person who you could spend you know, a few days at their house? What would you do? <laughs> How would you find the worthy person? You would have to talk to people. You'd yeah. have to sense them. You'd have to be in this very vulnerable state where you're seeking out what you think might be a worthy person. It's really, I mean, even in that little instruction, let alone the casting out of demons and, and all this other stuff he asked them to do, that is also highly vulnerable and kind of scary thing. It also, you know, very particularly removes control from them. It's one thing to go make a reservation at an inn and show up and say, I'm here now, here's my credit card, or here's my drachma, or here's my whatever, here's my Roman coin, um, and I've got a room for the night. It's quite another thing to have to be dependent on other people to do the things you said. Anything and you can't else? Just, well, you can't just like post on Instagram and be yeah. like, I need a place to stay, hashtag in Bend. Um, you have no idea who's going to answer that call, right? So you have to like walk into Starbucks and instead of just looking at your phone, you have to like strike up a conversation with somebody and just, you know, get to know them and tell them what you're doing and see if they are going to respond to that or not. And especially for, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, just want to make a disclaimer. Becky and I do indeed understand that in ancient biblical times, there were no credit cards, Starbucks, or Instagram accounts. Exactly. We, we, we are quite aware of that. We're, we are we're aware. We're speaking metaphorically. Please yeah. no emails, letters, or cards. <laughs> so let's slow down a little bit and take a look at this and, uh, and kind of pluck out some important aspects of what it means to live in a chosen dependent way. The first thing that I, that I notice is, is what I call uh, be dependent in small things. Be dependent in small things. I think it's, it's easy to miss here that Jesus takes the edge off of this a little bit for them. Because he says, I just want you going to the Jews this time. This first time out, I just want you to go to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. Why? Because, wow, you're, you're, if you're going to go to the Gentiles, you're going to leave behind even the foundations of your own culture and, the, and all of the uh, mores and habit patterns and cultural standards that you're used to amongst your own people and you have to lay all those down too and try to engage gentiles who have no conception or foundation for what you're about to say he's giving them a bit of an easier on-ramp here at the start and i i think it's important to remember that um as we begin to live more dependently on jesus in a chosen way it's fine to do this in a very small way in a very baby step way don't get give yourself more don't bite off more than you can choose. Uh, uh, look for things that are easy and doable. Can you think of anything, Becky, in your life where you, um, it's an easy, doable way that you depend on Jesus? Is there something that, that, that is a habit pattern that you have or something that you do 
that is easy and doable, but it's, but it's dependent on him. Yeah. Anytime I run into an issue um, that I just feel like this is totally out of my control. I just, I, I verbally recognize it. I just say, this is totally out of my control, Jesus. So I need your help right so now. So you, you're, you're saying you say it out loud. Yep. I just say I, it out loud. I just say, I, God, I am out of my depths and I cannot, I don't know what to do. And I need you to come in and, and be a part of this with me. I have to say that that little thing, saying it out loud is actually a huge thing. It's a mustard seed. Because when you say something out loud, you bring it from the darkness into the light, and that's where Jesus can do something about it. It's overcautious to keep things silent. It's bold, courageous, and vulnerable to say them out loud. You can feel it when you do it. There is a big difference between harboring a need inside and speaking it out. That act of speaking it out is in and of itself an act of dependence because it's a kind of an accountable thing then. I've just spoken this out loud. So one simple doable thing that I do in my life, now it just comes reflexively, I don't even think about it, is whenever I pray, either for myself or pray for somebody else, I pause and say, Jesus, how would you like me to pray? It's a very simple tweak, but it has made all of the difference in my relationship with Jesus and how I pray for people. That one thing where I pause first and I'm silent until I feel like I have some direction and then, um, and then I pray based on that direction. It changes everything and has created incredible intimacy, not only in my relationship with him, but when you're praying for someone that way, it invites them into a kind of intimacy they weren't expecting because they experience Jesus, uh, they experience in your prayer some uh, Jesus understanding something about them that only he could understand. It's very intimate. So, so the first thing is be dependent in small things. Find some small ways to exercise on your own dependence on Jesus. The second thing is ask Jesus first. So live your life like you're in a perpetual touch base meeting with Jesus. Uh, that's how I like to think about it. Or that writer box where the writer box is giving you feedback and you're paying attention to it. Um, throughout the day. So the, um, the question is, well, what, what does a check-in like this look like? You just said, Becky, that when you're sort of under duress or feel challenged, you'll speak that out. Are there other ways that you sort of check in with Jesus during the day that it have become sort of habitual for you or part of your everyday life? And, and then how have you developed that? I'm a journaler. So I, I journal every morning. Um, and if I have time at night <laughs> lately, my days have been running to the point where I just like hit the pillow at the end of the day. But in the morning, I just have a journal that sits next to my couch. And when I'm drinking my coffee first thing in the morning, I just kind of open it up and kind of pour out some things that happened yesterday or some things that are going to be happening today and process through. Um, I have definitely points where I feel like if I'm really struggling with something, I might just journal it out. I just might like sit and write for a while and just be totally vulnerably honest about um, how I'm thinking and feeling and, and just kind of let it out to God. And I don't try to, to control that in any way. I just kind of like let my full thoughts and emotions be kind of put there on paper and just let that flow through. Um, and I just, I find that just true, total honesty with him lets him kind of open up me to where I need to pay attention to what's really going on and let yeah, him, 
show me where, where I'm going wrong in it. And, and I definitely get answers from him where he's like, well, what's, what's your deal with this? What's your problem with this? Right. And sometimes that's what you need to hear is him saying, well, Becky, uh, check your toot at the door on this because you're a big part of what's happening here. That's good. I, I just had this image in my head as you were talking about if, if I'm sitting in a, in a kind of an empty room behind a kind of a big banquet, a rectangular banquet table, and the banquet table has this, this covering over it, uh, and I'm sitting on one side of it, and there's an empty chair on the other, and in walks Jesus. And he sits down in the chair, and we're about three feet apart looking at each other, but the table's empty. Underneath the covering of the table is my whole life. I have it all piled underneath there. So the question about how we live our life dependently and seeking him first is, what will I take out from under the covering and put on the table? Will I pull it all out or just some of it? Um, and the more we pull out, the more there is to relate to him about the more uh, relaxed we become because he sees it all. Now, of course, Jesus does see it all, but the dynamic of this is when we pull it out, it's like an offering. We are offering our vulnerability by pulling out our life and putting it in front of him. And I think our mission in life is to slowly move toward, if you can picture that scene in your head, to slowly move toward there being nothing under the table. Like there is Everything that's under the table is now on the table and available for him to interact with us about. I think that's the place we're headed toward. Number three here is trust Jesus to meet your needs when you have the need, not before, which is interesting because he's, he's telling his disciples here, hey, don't, don't take anything in advance. Don't prepare for any of this. In fact, I'm going to have you take away all the stuff you'd normally use to prepare in advance, I want you to be needy in the moment. And I think this is such a profound thing. I I experienced this over and over again with Jesus. He very rarely um, provides the need before I need it. He likes to maintain a dependent relationship. Another way of saying that is he likes to show up late. (laughs) He likes to show up in the nick of time. So I think about his parable of the pushy friend that I love so much, where he tells the story of a friend who comes to his friend's house in the, in the dark of night and says, I don't have enough bread for my, for my guests that have arrived. And the master of the house says, I'm already in bed. I'm not coming down. And the pushy friend just keeps knocking. And eventually the master of the house comes down, opens the door and gives him the bread he needs. And Jesus is saying, be like the pushy friend with me. Pound on my door. What he's really saying is, and he uses these words in his story, be shamelessly persistent with me. So what he means is, yes, I know you have a need right now. So pound on my door right now. Be present right now to me. So let's talk about one last one, number four. Respond to the trust he's given you by exercising your gifts. So we think about this also. He's, he's, what he's saying to the disciples is, um, I'm sending you out without me. I'm not going to be there to solve your issues. I'm not going to be there to perform the miracles. I'm not going to be there to cast out demons. I expect you to do these things, exercise your gifts, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. So the parable of the talents is like that, where Jesus says this master uh, 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 is leaving town and gives his three servants 
three different uh, quantities of talents to go out and do something with, and two of them do, and one of them buries the talent, doesn't even put it in the bank. And Jesus is really upset with that third one because he's not risked. He's not been vulnerable at all with what he's been left with. So he's asking us to exercise our gifts, and this means risking, not passively waiting for something to happen. So, Becky, because of your um, because of what you do, you are always living in the tension between um, doing things that you need to do and depending on him to do other things. How do you navigate that tension? Well, if you, if you pay attention to this um, passage of scripture that we just read, this is the, here's the deal. Jesus said, I give you the authority. He gave them a specific assignment. He told them to live dependently in that the assignment that they needed to get support for their basic needs from the people that they were serving. He said, don't take any more than that. And then he said, surround yourself with good people. Don't dwell on other people's opinions of what you're doing. And by the way, there's going to be some massive trials that included things like going to jail and stuff. <laughs> and then, and, and then he reminded them like, you're not greater than me. I'm your teacher and student isn't greater than their teacher. And so even when we go out, we're not just, um, living dependently doesn't mean living in paralysis. He's given you things to do. He's given you talents and he's given you abilities and he's asking you to go and use those things to focus on the positive parts of who you are and let him take care of the rest. Um, but to remember to put yourself in your own proper place because he is greater than you. And so that is a big part of dependence. Um, and I would just say, uh, don't choose dependence because it's way better than waiting for him to create some scenario in your life that forces you to be dependent. I can tell you that with total, I would rather choose dependence every day um, than wait for a painful experience to make me forced to have that, um, which is basically the whole entire story of the Old Testament is this continual perpetual pattern that we put ourselves in where um, God comes through, we trust God, then he, then we forget and we start to not trust him and we start, you know, worshiping other idols and then he creates a plague and then we have to trust him again. Um, choosing dependence means that we can um, be in a place where we are choosing him every single day and we're living out that. Yeah. And, and it, uh, uh, to, to kind of close that off, all of that dependent kind of living, exercising our gifts, it is risky and risk. Here's the thing about risk. It builds relationship. It ties us to him. This is why he wants us to risk in this way. He wants to draw us near. Why? Because he loves us. He delights in us. He wants to be with us. And so he's trying to teach us patterns of closeness so that we'll stay connected to him, as you just said, Becky, even when we don't feel forced to. So let's close off with this, this Tim Keller quote that I just love. I included it at the start of this Beeline chapter in the Jesus-Centered Life. Here's what Tim Keller says. I think it's so profound. He says, people have more information about God than they have experiences of him. Get them in places where they have to rely upon God. And I think that's really what we're talking about here, Becky. It's, it's putting ourselves in position where we have to rely upon him before we feel forced to rely upon him. So I think that's the tension we live in. Any last thought before we uh, head off here? 
Uh, just great to, to talk to all of you guys and um, just want to make sure that, um, you know, you guys just continue to love Jesus, follow him and pay ridiculous attention to the things that he put in front of us. There you go. And we're going to put a link to uh, Becky's uh, business right on the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus page. Uh, we're going to put that on the page. So if you want to get in contact with her because you think she might be of help to you, um, we'll put it right there. And you can, you can uh, contact her directly if you have something you think uh, you might need her help with. So there you have it. Um, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can check out the Jesus Centered Planner before they're all gone. Just go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Look for Season 4, Episode 44, and you'll see links to everything we talked about today. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again next time. 